0: Hello lovers, go to entamopleasurebowls.com for your slippery needs and get 20% off with the WILD20 promo code. You'll thank me later. Running Wild with Christine, sex, success, and other slippery rabbit holes. Welcome to episode 93 with AJ Loeck.
1: Hi! Hi there. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm actually just watching my cat eat lettuce. <laughs> does, does, do they usually do that? I have two cats, and one of them is obsessed with green things. Kale, lettuce, broccoli. And um, yeah, we have a living lettuce, and she has found it. Oh, no. So I'm keeping an eye on our conversation while simultaneously... Hoping she doesn't knock over the living lettuce.
0: <laughs> I know nothing about cats. I live with a cat person who's like begging us to get cats. But I, I'm like, I mm, have a very nice couch. I would like to stay that way. So I, I admire all of you people with cats.
1: Yes, this this lettuce eating cat has destroyed our couch. But we love her, so it's okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, So AJ, you and I are connected actually by like a bunch of random people, it turns out because um, I do these things, like, I, I think once a month where I'm like, oh, who should I speak with? And I think, like, three different people texted me, like, hey, reach out to
1: AJ. Well, that's very nice to hear.
0: Isn't it fun? Oh, my gosh, she's adorable.
1: I'm moving her for the sake of the letters. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, because you were on Kiltern Mint, I think, like, about the same week that I was on Kilter and Mint. And... Yeah, just a month ago. Yeah, and I think, um, actually, my friend Julia, who runs... Um, So I had an abortion and who's also like reproductive rights at UBC was like, hey, reach out to HAC if uh, they want to come talk. So
1: here we are. Yeah, and that's uh, a lot of what I do is reproductive justice uh, work, specifically trans-inclusive reproductive justice work. So that's cool that my name came to you multiple ways.
0: Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit? We'll do the same thing that we do with everyone, a bit of context. So who are you where are you from what was your childhood childhood like like let's go way back
1: uh nothing no heavy questions to start with eh? (laughs) um so it's interesting because I'm used to introducing myself in very academic settings so you know you start with the university you go to and then you add your credentials and your recent publications um so I will attempt to refrain from doing that (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I, uh, grew up in Southern Ontario, specifically Brampton outside of Toronto. Um, I did most of my post-secondary education in Toronto, and then I moved to Vancouver six years ago to do my PhD. So that's kind of what I spend the vast bulk of my time on is my dissertation and things related to my research. Um, so all my various jobs are kind of tangentially connected to my research in some way. Um, so that's a big, you know, like people wear multiple hats. Yeah. That's the most predominant hat, I suppose, is the academic one. Um, but I also do yoga and love cats and knit things when I have spare time, which is very rarely, but Covid nineteen has allowed me some time to knit, which is you know trying to see the positives yeah. of everything that's
0: happening hundred percent I'm like ca- caught up on the podcast like for the next month, like just everything's slowly falling in together the the few things that we have control over yeah, um so tell me about your your like I don't know up to sort of end of primary school before like high school what what are you like as a,
1: as a human at that point? I'm very much a nerd. Uh, Always have excelled at school, have always loved school, despite being really heavily bullied in school. Like the academics part, I figured out really quickly. And I think it was part kind of smarts, but also part figuring out the system and how to work it. So it was like, oh, you need me to do A, B, or C, even if I think that's kind of silly. I know that I can do it and I can organize my time such that I can check all of the boxes of what this system requires of me yeah um so yeah very much a, a kind of nerdy school kid um and then I was also a ballerina my parents put me in uh, dance when I was really young and so I I danced from ages probably four to 18 until I started high school Nice. Um, yeah, and I'm the youngest of three kids. Um, <laughs> my parents had two boy children and then wanted a girl, and instead they got me, uh, <laughs> which they're fine with now. But uh, I was very much raised as like the quintessential little girl. So ballet and tutus, Girl Guides, baby dolls. I had china dolls all around my room. Kind of very quintessentially little girl.
0: And when did that start sort of clashing with your
1: personality <laughs> or your true essence? Um, really, I, I was perfectly happy with my kind of gender assignment until I realized I had a choice, um, which was a lot later than I think a lot of people's stories. I was in first year university and I met trans people for the first time and literally had a kind of aha moment yeah. that, that gender was this system that I had been taught to adhere to and that I it didn't have to confine me and then in the probably 20 years since then um, I've just tried to carve space for myself in a new gender category that I call non-binary yeah the category of woman stopped fitting in my kind of early early 20s late teens
0: and so you were already in university and what were you studying at that time
1: I started university as a psych major and figured out really quickly that I did not want to be a psych major. Um, So (laughs) I, at the same time that I was realizing not only that I didn't want to do psych, but also wasn't getting A's, which wasn't something I was used to. The university I was at, the University of Toronto, was developing something called the Sexual Diversity Studies Programme. And so I kind of got in on the ground level of this thing called sexuality studies or sexual diversity studies um, and realized like, hey, I can I can study my community and I can do research for my community and I can learn more about like queer history and queer literature and like all of these things that I was personally really invested in, in an academic setting. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I was studying was sociology and then sexual diversity studies.
0: That's awesome. Uh, now you just made me think, did you also like at that time realize your queerness or, or like how does your... Yeah,
1: great question. Yeah, my queerness came first. Um, <laughs> I... I came out as bisexual at 14. And then as like, I think lesbian was a word I used at about 15. Um, And when I told my parents both of these things, their response was to say that they knew already. Uh, My mom actually pat me on the head and kind of said, (laughs) I know, dear. Um, And I was aghast by that because I was prepared for a big familial fallout yeah. and for folks to be not supportive and accepting but quite the opposite my parents have pleasantly surprised me throughout my life with their completely unconditional support of, of everything that I do even if they don't agree with the decisions that I've made their their kind they're of love for yeah. me is unwavering which mm. is pretty lovely
0: did you think they were going to have a problem with it because of like that's the script of coming out or did, or was it like because of who they are and what they're like
1: yeah, no, precisely because that's the script because that's the story that I knew about coming out. Um that's what I had absorbed through the media that was available at the time, through the books that I had read. That was the story. That's what happens when you come out is your parents reject you and you go to live with a friend, you know. Yeah. Um or worse. Um and so that's what I was prepared for. Um and my parents have kind of pushed against those normative scripts time and time again with every one of my coming outs (laughs) and life decisions and physical moves to different parts of the country. Um, They very much kind of, yeah, have written their own story or helped me to write my own story, I suppose. That's awesome. And so,
0: I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like being at that point in university and just having those like, multiple aha moments and also find a program that like supports your own like discovery of like what is
1: yeah I mean it radically changed the trajectory of my life um while I always imagined myself being a person who did work that made people's lives better and that's what I was thinking I could accomplish with a psychology degree and with going into kind of therapy or counseling um I never would have imagined where I am now and who I am now as a younger person. It just wasn't in what I saw for myself. And so both all of my multiple coming outs and also figuring out what I wanted to do academically has, has, yeah, absolutely shaped, um, who I am now.
0: That's awesome. I think, um, I mean, I'm going to try also refrain myself because I'm totally a nerd also and would study forever and ever if someone financially supported me. Um, so I'm gonna refrain from asking really like particular <laughs> academic questions because this is my way of staying educated as the podcast have figured it out. But um, but so what did you end up sort of, um, cause you finished your grad school in Toronto as well?
1: So I finished my master's in Toronto and I'm um, about nine months away from finishing my PhD. Jeez,
0: so what was your master's in? Before we get into so, the, like, the next six years, yeah.
1: um, So there's a bit of a story that leads up to my master's. Yes, I um, was finishing my undergraduate degree and really had very unclear ideas about what I wanted to do next. But I was working in an abortion clinic at the time. And found the work incredibly fulfilling. It was a job that I loved. Um, My mental health was really poor at the time, so I probably wasn't the best employee. But I nevertheless loved where I worked, the people that I worked with, the work that I got to do when I was there. But the clinic that I worked at was a women's only clinic, Mm -hmm. which meant that to work there, one needed to identify as a woman. Um, and I obviously was in this period of self-discovery, realizing that woman wasn't a category that was going to fit me for much longer. I couldn't really stretch it and fit it over my head anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was kind of encouraged behind closed doors by certain colleagues to kind of keep my blossoming trans identity a secret, but that as long as I wasn't going to be identifying as a man... That I should be okay because I wasn't going to be growing a beard or insisting on he, him pronouns. That this kind of non binary gray zone would allow me to still, quote, pass as a woman sufficiently enough to stay, which felt horrible, right? Yeah. Because I was I'm say tough. not a woman. Um, but they, um, I started essentially asking questions of my colleagues about like, okay, well, you've been working in abortion care for 20 years or for 10 years or for eight years. How many trans people have you seen as clients? Because trans folks need the services that are available here. And so how many folks have you seen or what would the care that you deliver look like if you knew that the person you were serving was a trans person? And I was surprised to hear that very few of my colleagues said that they had ever served a trans person before, which seems statistically impossible to me, um, recognizing that a lot of trans people aren't visible, right? Like you can't tell by looking at someone yeah. that they're trans. Um, and then folks weren't able to really think through beyond names and pronouns, how their service delivery would change. And so I um, I got funding to do my master's degree. I stopped working at the clinic and I wrote my master's thesis research on Barriers to trans inclusion within abortion settings. Yeah. Um, looking at women's only freestanding clinics, but also hospitals, like anywhere that abortion service is delivered. What were the barriers um, yeah. to that care? So that was my master's, was yeah, trans inclusive abortion access, um, which started me down this trajectory of trans-inclusive reproductive justice as the kind of broad frame of what I do.
0: Mm -hmm. And did you find that a lot of the barriers to entry for the services were the same as the barriers to entry as a worker?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the the like employment policy piece um, is obviously not universal. Like there's a lot of clinics that don't have women's only policies, but for the ones that do, it's kind of, Illustrative of broader philosophical or political positionings that are taken in those spaces. And so the employment policy that says you have to be a woman is illustrative of really gendered expectations about abortion um, and about care too, like who is permitted to deliver this care and that there ought to be some kind of gender commonality. Like it didn't matter if you had had an abortion yourself, the fact that you were a woman was therefore presumed to connect you more to other women who needed abortions. I don't, yeah, there was some kind of gendered philosophy of care that was happening in those spaces. Um, And so, yeah, the employment piece um, ultimately is just like a tip of the iceberg. It's one place, one policy, one practice that creates barriers um, and one among many, like there are, there are dozens of things that need to change in order for a clinic or hospital or provider, whether or not they're delivering care under this umbrella of women only or women centered. There's so many barriers that exist in those spaces.
0: Yeah. And have you seen any of those changes happen in the last six years while focusing on your PhD or like is that's yeah jumped out of your focus?
1: um interestingly i kind of put my my master's thesis on a shelf and expected it to just kind of collect dust and then i moved on to my phd which is about trans people's reproductive lives and decision making more generally yeah and within my first probably year of my phd I received an email from um, some really lovely folks at, it's called La Fédération du Planning de Naissance, yeah. which is the equivalent of Planned Parenthood in Planned Quebec. Quebec. Yeah. And they reached out to me and said, we found your name while Googling trans and abortion. We would like to train our providers on how to do this. Do you have any resources for us? Do you have any suggestions of scholarly articles or policy guidelines or like anything? And I essentially said, "Well, no, there is nothing, um, but I would be happy to help write something." Um, and so, with some funding from those folks, I wrote a manual for providers that has since been adapted for use across Canada and into the U.S. Uh, and which a uh, UK version is currently being written um, mm-hmm. that does just that—that that, like teaches providers how to be trans inclusive, that provides context of why trans people need abortion services in the first place. Um, and I use that manual also in in-person trainings. Yeah. So I go into um, pretty much abortion clinics or hospitals anywhere that will have me. And I do targeted trainings for staff. And then I also audit policies, practices, and websites um, to ensure that those are trans inclusive. So there's absolutely a shift. Um, there's a shift on the individual provider level and then there's also a shift on like the kind of governing structural level or things like the national abortion federation and the abortion rights coalition of canada has changed their mission statements to be trans inclusive so when i started asking these questions 10 years ago 12 years ago and people would kind of look at me like what do you mean trans people need abortions um now there's been there's been quite substantive change yeah. um which is really quite awesome to see
0: yeah no it's amazing and i um had the um, had tony on the podcast a, a bunch of episodes ago talking about uh, trans inclusive death care
1: yes absolutely um yeah i saw that they uh just want to use they pronouns
0: uh i'm not sure if they've decided on they or him just yet, they were sort of either or at the point where we talked.
1: Okay. Uh, so I'll use they pronouns yeah. for Tony and my apologies if Tony has since decided uh, on different pronouns, yeah. but I saw that they had been on the show and I thought that was really wonderful. Cause I actually just gave a talk that's really outside of my frame of reference on, um, elder abuse in trans communities. Um, For a group called the BC Community Response Networks. So these are folks who like work to identify, prevent and respond to elder abuse. And they were looking for better understanding of the particular vulnerabilities for trans older adults. And that's not what I do. But because I teach trans inclusion generally, and someone from that organization had seen me speak, um, I was invited to do a webinar. And so I spent a couple of weeks doing research and digging into the very limited literature on the topic and then showed and shared what is the very bleak picture of trans older adults' lives. Yeah. Um, and so I thought it was really cool when I was digging through your podcast archives to see that there are other folks um, engaging in these really important conversations
0: yeah no it was it was fascinating as and as someone who is cisgender I was like you know when you start opening a can of, of worms and suddenly you're like oh my god the implications are like giant it was like this where do you even be I didn't know where to begin with my questions for for um them and let's yeah let's just let's let's use them as as per your uh caution area uh, and sorry tony if i get it wrong um but um but yeah no it's 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 crazy how the and this is going back to sort of my question about scripts and how the the, the narrative devices also mm-hmm. are giant all over the the gender spectrum and that's why it was interesting for me when you were emailing me to talk about like to sort of pre-plan this this interview or episode was like the the way that you said the way that I walk as a human because there's there's so many ways of of doing it wrong. You know what I mean? There's so many ways of as as people just relating to each other that confine the existence of certain human beings and for me like it's it's just this is where storytelling takes like a huge other dimension of just completely shifting like you were saying because you were just the same example that you just used it's like outside of your realm but because you're in trans inclusion work in general it sort of like spans out to everything everything
1: yeah yeah and even within reproductive health or reproductive justice sometimes i explain to people what i do And they kind of say like, oh, well, can't trans people just reproduce just like everybody else? And then you start to tease apart like, well, what would it actually look like to be a man in the maternity ward or to be non-binary at the OBGYN or to be a trans woman at like banking sperm at the sperm bank? Like, what do those experiences actually look like? Not to mention the fact that when we think about sex, gender, reproduction and also parenthood, we tie these together in really cisnormative ways. So the expectation is that if you're a trans guy, well, you're a guy and guys don't get pregnant. So suddenly, if you actually desire pregnancy, for some people on the outside looking in, they'll say, well, well then you're not a guy, because guys don't get pregnant. And it's like, well, no, I'm both a guy and I'm getting pregnant. These two things are not antithetical. But for many people, the these things are tethered together so strongly yeah. that those dominant norms impact how you're perceived when you walk down the street as a pregnant guy, how you receive health care, whether your family accepts your gender and your reproductive decision, or if one excludes their acceptance of the other. Yeah. Um, and so once you start to tease it apart, just like you said, it's like, it's a Pandora's box. It's just endless, the amount of things that our barriers, the amount of norms that we have about reproduction and parenting that don't allow trans bodies, trans identities to exist and flourish. And so that's, that's pretty much the bulk of the work that I do is unpacking all of that um, and showing it to people, like kind of exposing it for what it is and going this, this is what trans people are up against when they decide to form families using their bodies or not, as the case may be. Yeah. And so what is your thesis for your PhD? Yeah, so my fee- my thesis is about um, the interconnection between gender and reproduction mm-hmm. for trans folks. So how trans people negotiate reproductive decision-making in ways that either are or are not tied up with their gender. Um, and then also experiences of reproductive health care. So what is it like being a non-binary person at the OBGYN? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I interviewed... Um, 14 participants from um, the greater Vancouver area and also the West Kootenays communities and sat down with them and asked them about who they are and what reproductive life has looked like for them and if their parents, how is that going? And what was it like talking to their top surgeon about the fact that they might want to chest feed one day or... Um, You know any any of that. So I'm at the stage now where I am analyzing my data and writing my dissertation, and the plan is to defend it by the end of this year.
0: So, AKA, you're in the fun part. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm in the so stressful and anxiety-inducing that you Uh want to quit every day, Uh but then you remind yourself that you're nearly done, and so you just need to get over the last little hump. Uh Um, Yeah, yeah,
0: every uh... every friend that I have that's at that stage in their PhD or have been, um, it's like the like getting to your apartment building when you need to pee and the elevator ride right? is like endless. It's like suddenly you live on the 180th floor and it just will not get there. And you're like so close, but it's just hell.
1: That analogy is hilariously appropriate. Yes, that's very much what it's like. It's like, I got feel it. like I'm already done already. Yeah, you got home. And I'm actually... Just waiting for the little like dissertation fairies or elves to come in the middle of the night and just write it for me. But they just like they suck at their jobs. And so I'm having to do it myself, which I like resent, but
0: can't blame them. I mean, with all this (laughs) going on in the world, they're probably very busy right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's yeah, that must that I don't I never went into. PhD for that reason because I was like I'm going to go mentally insane I cannot I cannot do that to myself I don't have a strength in me not yet anyway so kudos
1: <laughs> thanks yeah there. yeah the I think the the mental health challenges of being a graduate student aren't something that folks really are aware of that like mm-hmm. you're incredibly precarious in the world of academia you're underpaid you um are in some instances really underappreciated because you're not quite yet the peer of the folks above you, but you're actually not a student anymore in yes. this really traditional sense. Like, I teach undergrads, which is bizarre because I feel like it was just yesterday that I was an undergrad and, like, who entrusted me with teaching undergrads? <laughs> but I'm just, like, months away from having a PhD. Yeah, it's a weird... It's weird. It's a weird space to be. <laughs>
0: Um, so going back to, because I, I like to tie things on. Oh, you're cutting
1: out a little bit, probably due to internet connection issues.
0: Because everyone is on the
1: internet, you mean? That's it. Uh Yeah. I Um, can hear you now though.
0: (laughs) I was saying going back to, um, uh, tying it back to the personal, which is one of my favorites. Um, did, did your... Did your PhD thesis come to you because of your experiences with reproductive rights like the the exact angle that you're going or was it sort of like an accident? Was it like you going through going to the OBGYN and being like mm-hmm, like these things or you know?
1: <laughs> yeah well, I mean, so my way in, obviously, was via abortion, mm-hmm. and I personally have never needed to access abortion services, but it's something that I politically believe in really strongly. Um, and it's kind of like, as my research has formed, and the topic has kind of refined and refocused itself, more and more do I realize that I have a subject in my own research. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily that one inspired the other, it's that... I think for me, it's always been important to do research that I'm personally connected to and invested in and that could improve the lives and health of my community. Mm -hmm. And so it's not an accident that I'm also a trans person who navigates reproductive healthcare spaces and decision making processes. Um, and I've absolutely felt uncomfortable in the OBGYN's waiting room surrounded by chatelaine magazines and pictures of smiling women. Um, so, yeah, I think in the same way that, like, you are what you eat or whatever the mm-hmm. adage is, like, I am what I study. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I'm very much. I'm caught up in all of these conversations personally as well. And um, although I don't like use myself as a participant in my yeah. dissertation, I do very much talk about how who I am has informed the questions that I ask and why I think this is important in the first place. And I think because I'm a trans person who's navigating reproductive life, I'm also kind of given more of a platform to be more of an expert to speak to healthcare providers. And I see that as part of my responsibility is like trans folks are often having to educate their providers in order to get competent care. Whereas Mm -hmm. I'm putting myself in front of that work and doing it so that other trans folks don't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Oh gosh. I just had a question that is uh, at the tip of my tongue. Where, where, Where was I going? Um, Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you, Um, when you when you do end up seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and everything is, you know, defended and completed, and you got the like, tick, what's next? Yeah. <laughs> have you even had the like mental space to go there?
1: Yeah, it's you kind of have to because as you approach the end of your PhD, you kind of have to be planning for the next steps so I mean I think for me that's going to be postdoctoral fellowships so more more school pretty much um yeah I I joke that I'm going to be a perpetual student um and that even when I am not a student anymore my goal is to be a professor so I'm never actually going to leave academic institutions I'm just going to transition (laughs) haha trans joke over (laughs) from (laughs) one thing to another um yeah. So the ultimate goal is to be a professor. I love being able to both teach students and do research. Both yeah. of those things are really fulfilling for me. Um, but that's also a really challenging career to get into, particularly in a field as small as the one that I work in. Yeah. So um, I've got connections with a variety of research institutes that do all kinds of incredible work. And so if I Position myself there, and that's where I end up staying. And I can do research and maybe just teach in like a public lecture kind of capacity, yeah. as opposed to a university classroom kind of role. Um, that would work oh, for me too. Nice. Um,
0: how does it affect? Do you find that there's like any noticeable changes? How does it affect you as a human walking around um, to be a PhD fellow? Do you think that it's like? I'm talking about. Or I'm I'm digging about, like, credibility and sense of self and, like, all that stuff, like, I find that it's, uh, we're in a shifting world when it comes to expertise and when it comes to, like, <clears throat> like you were saying, like, because that's your lived experience, it gives you a little bit more street cred in situations where, like, they'll invite you to talk and you can have the authority to be the talker about this topic. Like, do you think yeah. that that sort of, like, changed the way that people perceive you on top of your gender identity and...
1: The work that you do? Yeah, it's interesting. It's In some ways, it's kind of a double-edged sword because when I go into most academic settings, most research institutes, I'm one of, if not the only person who does what I do. Yeah. And so I have expertise to lend. I have a perspective that might otherwise be absent from that space. And that's incredibly valuable. Um, and I don't take that like I don't take that for granted like I consider it a huge responsibility but on the other hand um and rightfully so a lot of trans people are suspicious of the academy because it has done atrocious harms not only to our communities but endless other communities and a lot of the times academic writing is completely inaccessible not only in the words that it uses but the articles are behind a paywall yeah exactly and so I'm really aware of the ways that my position within academic institutions and as a researcher places me in this really interesting space where I'm both an insider in trans communities and I'm an outsider Mm -hmm. um and I've actually, I've done conference presentations about that in academic <laughs> institutions. Um, but yeah, like the insider outsider is not a binary that I live in the liminal space between those two positions. Because I am trans, I speak the language of transness, I'm able to translate trans experience to academics. And because I'm an academic, I'm able to do research that I hope improves people's lives or like things with my master's where I turned my master's into this manual, which I use to train up providers, like those kind of community based action components, I think are really important for me. But I know that some trans people look at me and say like, well, you're not one of us because you're a part of this really violent institution that kind of writes about trans experience without considering the real needs of trans people on the ground. And, for a lot of trans people reproductive life and health is not their top priority like there's trans women of color who are dealing with violence on a daily survival. basis their yeah. survival exactly that and so for for many reproductive life is something that they can only imagine for a potential hypothetical future in generations yeah. because yeah housing and job security and not being harassed on the street or murdered um, while doing their jobs is a very real and pressing concern for them. And I recognize that my work doesn't touch those issues. So, so it's it's challenging because I try to do my my part and my bit and something that I think is important and that I'm very passionate about and that I'm personally invested in. But at the same time, I'm complicit in an institution that has historically and continuously done harms. So...
0: But I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's something that's true about a lot. Sorry, I don't know what's happening with my voice. <clears throat> I think that's true about a lot of, when you look at a lot of systemic issues, and I think that's sort of, in a way, and unfortunately inevitable because you, y- yes, you ha- there is work to be done outside the system, and there is work to be done inside the system, and there is no way to do it without considering the system. <laughs> you know precisely. What I mean? Yeah. So I think I think it's a tough it's a tough place to be regardless because you you can't you can't do it all you can't do both or you can't do neither like there's got to be there's going to be some intricacies that that have to do with the systemic um uh, systemic oppression in general
1: yeah yeah and I try to use the kind of financial resources afforded to me as someone who is making money in this field of trans inclusion and funnel some of that towards community groups that I'm not personally involved in but that are doing really great work on the ground so like i donate to um prison abolition groups i donate to uh women's shelter here in the downtown east side that includes trans women in their agenda and in their purview so i i try to kind of help (laughs) as much as i can um financially in ways that maybe i don't have the time or capacity to to lend my voice or my expertise or my physical body to those kind of activist efforts i I try to do something at the very least
0: that's awesome. that's awesome um what's um what's a thing that um that people don't ask you about that you that you wish they, they would like what's like a a gap in like your existence like you know you're speaking a lot in like the academic world and the bubble and you're speaking a lot as the person that walks the earth that you are, but like what's a thing that people like just like
1: completely bypass? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think when it comes to being non-binary, people get stuck at pronouns. And so they'll ask about my pronouns. They'll make efforts to use they them pronouns when referring to me. But then actually what it's like to try to be intelligible in the world to try to get people to see you as non-binary I don't think people really think much about what that actually looks like, what the challenges of that are. They're kind of like, oh, they, them pronouns. Check mark, got it. But, <laughs> I figured you out. This is right? where you live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and in the same way that those early questions I started asking of abortion providers who hadn't imagined much beyond names and pronouns as things that they might need to change in order to make their service trans inclusive, I think that's happening now too, where people think like, oh well, I know what pronouns this person uses, therefore I know what I need to know about them. And walking in the world as a non-binary person is incredibly challenging because there is no there's no social script. There's no yeah. like The person I walk by on the street who's a stranger doesn't have a box in their head where I might fit. So they're trying to fit me into the man or woman box, and they're always going to be wrong. And it's always going to be painful for me when they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I think people think of misgendering as something that happens in one-on-one interactions when someone accidentally or intentionally uses the wrong pronouns or uses the wrong name or the wrong language. But actually for me, like misgendering is a part of my existence. It happens in every moment of every day because I'm constantly forced to make gendered decisions in a world where there are only two options. Like I can go to the women's (laughs) section of the clothing store or the men's and I can try to make a non-binary fashion (laughs) moment happen, but I'm still having to select options that are gendered one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, misgendering is, is a, is a part of my every single moment experience.
0: And what are you, what's a thing that you wish, like, could, like, if you had a magical, like, click button, like, what would be your, like, most satisfying little shift that you could see? Like, a third box that exists, or, like, no boxes at all? Like, what, you know what I mean? Like,
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me personally, I'm a kind of gender anarchist. I would love the world to (laughs) step away from gender. Um, But I also recognize that for some people, including some trans people, having a gender box is a huge part of their authentic experience. And so I recognize that what I want for myself might not actually be the best thing for everyone. So actually joke, you were talking about a button. Like I always joke about how I'm looking for and reaching for the gender opt-out button. (laughs) Like if there was a button where I could just smash it and just like completely opt myself out of this system and be seen just as a human being. Because I don't feel myself to have a gender. Um I'm very much a gender, genderless. Um if there was a way for people to just see me as AJ, a human being who does good work in the world and likes cats and knits cool things, <laughs> um, that would be awesome for me. Yeah. Um, but I also recognize that for a lot of binary identified trans folks, being allowed into the binary system and legitimized as the man and women that they are is supremely important. So, yeah, this is the solution for me the gender opt out button. Um, would be lovely, um, but I don't want to take away from what other people need
0: yes, for themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're we're talking here in a complete hypothetical situation that exactly that suits our little imaginary world. So, yes, um, you're totally allowed to have your imaginary opt-out button that, yeah. that makes you happy. Well,
1: I think ultimately, like this idea of sex and gender as binary and as linked the way that we think of them to be is is a part of the colonial project, right? Like if we think about other parts of the world or Canada pre-contact, like gender is much more expansive than there are two sexes, there are two genders, they line up in these ways, that's normal, that's natural. Yeah. yeah. Like. That is
0: not. No, that's social. That's a complete social construct of a particular, a com- like, root with a particular racial context. And they're like.
1: Precisely, yeah. yeah. And so when people use some of those social constructs to delegitimize my identity, I want to remind them that this is all stuff that has been created for particular political, nation building, religious, et cetera, purpose. Like, you can't be like, well, If a, if someone gets pregnant, well, then they're a woman because only women get pregnant because you're using a cis normative construct as the measuring stick against which you are determining whether someone else is authentically themselves. And like, it's all bullshit, right? Like there's no science, quote unquote, and even science is colonial, right? (laughs) There's no, like, there's nothing that says a man can't get pregnant, And yet people will use their particular understanding of pregnancy as being a woman's thing in order to say that anyone who gets pregnant is a woman or anyone who menstruates. If you menstruate, well, then that's proof. That's proof to me that you're a woman. Well, no, I'm a human species living in this flesh sack and it just happens to bleed. (laughs) And that does not a woman make.
0: No, Um, no. And, and it's, for me, I think that's, like why i find this interesting and why i'm struggling to stay out of the academic bubble and and use words that are more accessible is because like my my studies were in international relations so it was like mm. macro level um but i focused on theory so my entire like before the creative and before the podcast and before the book like my field of research was words and narrative like without knowing it i was already focusing on storytelling but i I uh, had this class with Chris Erickson, who is a professor of political theory at UBC, and who was on episode nine, if anybody wants to go and check it out. Um, We're talking about um, the politics of fear, (laughs) in reference to the language of fear. So for politics of fear to work, you need binary constructs you need opposites you need us versus them and you need to know that them is the wrong answer so there's really just no choice you're just us like that's the right choice that's the only way to be and so in this like few classes that I took with him we were talking about the concept of um of uncertainty if you couldn't make a claim with certainty if certainty wasn't a thing if everything you said included within the words that you were using maybe I'm wrong like, if that was included in any statement that you ever made, how drastically that would change the way that we live and the way that we are. Yeah. And so for me, that's always when we look at binaries and we look at these constructs that depend on the certainty of certain people, it it blows my mind how everything is within the way that, the way that we phrase it just influences the way that things are.
1: Absolutely. And
0: yeah. so as someone who's a non-monogamous relationship, I'm, just, like, coming across, like, very, like, it's totally okay, I'm I'm happy to do that deconstructing for other people, like, not comparing it to the existence of someone who is non-binary, but, like, I'm starting to see, like, oh, we need to put you in this box, therefore, and I'm like, that's not, I, what? Did I, okay, why? Why'd you do that? Like, where's this box coming from? And, like, deconstructing all these things where, like, people need this this they need to know, they need to need to be able to art, like articulate and identify and pinpoint and place. And I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah.
1: And the, as you were talking, I was thinking both about how speaking from a point of certainty actually tells us something about power.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: so who is able to speak with certainty and whose statements, even if said with certainty, are doubted. Yeah. Um, and so that power is caught up in these things. 100%. And that also if we have a kind of box of who is normal or natural or even just socially accepted, legitimate, illegitimate, absolutely. That as that box expands and new people get added into it, which is constantly happening. Butler talks about this. If you want to talk about theory that then it becomes the job of those newly normalized people to police the boundaries. And so we have, you know normative white gays and lesbians who have gained social legitimacy who have gained access to some institutions in who some are now friendly. able to speak yeah. with certainty um who then are participating in institutions that harm others yeah and are able to then police the boundaries and say like oh well we want the, the police to be at pride and then they're pushing Black and brown and indigenous, queer and trans people even further into precarity as they reposition themselves as part of the status quo. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. Um. I love, I love theory. I'm also a theory person. And so, yeah, I was thinking about like, what thoughtful thing has Judith Butler said that yeah. I could contribute to this conversation?
0: No, for sure. and I think, so that's why I'm like very conscious to remind myself that this is my privilege and that this bubble is like showing of where, where my brain was allowed to go in this like system where, you know, I had access to that knowledge knowledge, quote unquote, because again, that doesn't work within the framework that I've just tried to establish. But, um, but um, I think, I think that's why for me, these conversations of like people within their existence, and like you were saying, a human who walks around in the world, like, it's important to, to share them in a way that is accessible and in a way that is personal, because I find that a lot of it gets to be, you know, upholding of those boundaries and upholding of those statuses and upholding of the situation, even within trying to change it. And therefore, like, when we step ourselves out of the conversation or put our existence outside of this realm, it just suddenly becomes this, like, whatever conversation, uh, this theory conversation that people are just like, whatever, it's theory. Like, they don't know what it's really like. Yeah. And so it's, for me, I think um, that's where all stories are important and all stories are interesting because with, with, um, with some limitations to that as to the stories... That revolve only around suppressing
1: other people's existence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I <laughs> think I like for me, it has always been important to acknowledge that like my story is possible, my identity is possible, my education has been possible because of the privileges afforded to me because of my whiteness and my ability and you know all of these other kind of things that I didn't earn, um, yeah, exactly. but I'm able to walk down the street while non-binary. Because of those privileges, because my whiteness facilitates that for me, where I don't feel unsafe, um, where I will tell a server that I'm not a lady when they come to the table and say, hey, ladies, how's your evening going? I'm able to confront them about that and say, hey, actually, not everyone sitting here is a lady because of the safety afforded to me because of those privileges. So, like, my story is is tied up in all of those other aspects of who I am. Yeah. And like, that's not theoretical. That's, yeah. that's an actual thing. Yeah. So how I walk in the world, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality <laughs> is because some of my identities are privileged in this world. Yeah. And as a result of that, the things about me that are more marginalized are things that I can articulate loudly and proudly and unapologetically Yeah, because yeah. I'm not struggling to meet my, daily survival needs yeah yeah
0: hmm. all right so it's time for the dreaded last question of the episode
1: oh I haven't been looking forward to this you didn't set it up in a way that made me like fill with confidence
0: I never do it's great
1: um, <laughs> um
0: the que- it's actually not that scary um okay basically I always ask everyone at the end um to tell the listeners a thing that you wish you'd been told, that you wish you knew, like something that you wish that you know now that you wish had sort of been like part of the mantras that made your existence
1: easier? I think in the same way that I had to wait until my late teens, early twenties to realize that I had a choice in my gender. I wish that that choice was something everyone realized they had. And that it is actually a violent practice to look at a fetus, decide what genitals it has, and then start automatically to ascribe it with gender norms. So, yeah, I wish, I wish that we all knew that there was a gender opt-out button, even if it's not something that you can easily or readily see in your community or culture or language, Um And that opting out of gender or making room for more people in gender actually benefits all of us. That it's not just a trans issue, but that some cisgender men feel suffocated by the box of masculinity and some cisgender women feel suffocated by the box of cisgender womanhood. And so reaching for those moments of gender opt out or not forcing us from the time we are fetuses into one of those gender boxes is something that I think could benefit the world
0: yeah I totally agree see it wasn't that hard (laughs) it wasn't that hard (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for coming to talk to me
1: absolutely it was my pleasure
0: it was a pleasure
1: so where can people find you um so if you're interested in my kind of academic world uh, ajlowick.com um and that i post there about presentations that i'm doing or public lectures that i'm giving things that i've published i'll share the link to this podcast yeah. um and then for the more kind of social fun yoga knitting and cats um with some academia thrown <laughs> in uh i'm on instagram at the gender offender
0: perfect Uh, all the links will be in the description so everybody if you want to know more that's where you click um thank you for listening to another episode of running wild with christine we will talk to you all next week